everyone. Before we get started, we wanted to let you know about our venue consulting. We have broken up our offerings into four distinct needs, design, sales and client experience, marketing, and those all important SOPs. You can take advantage of one or all of these tricky spots for your venue. If you want to learn more and get a few more details, head on over to hustleandgather.com to see how we can work together and reach your venue goals. All right, let's get to today's show. You have to allow that space to like process and to grieve and to get to the other side because there's always going to be things that you're grieving in life. Not necessarily just the finality of like losing a person, but it could be a business. It could be yourself. It could be an idea. It could be, you know, a relationship. Welcome to Hustle & Gather, a podcast about inspiring the everyday entrepreneur to take the leap. I'm Courtney. And I'm Dana. And we're two sisters who love business. On this show, we talk about the ups and downs of the hustle and the reward at the end of our journey. And we know all the challenges that come with starting a business. Between operating our wedding venue, doing speaking and consulting, and starting our luxury wedding planning company, we wake up and hustle every day. And today we're talking, just the two of us, about last week's episode with Inez Ripostello, owner of On The Square Restaurant, owner of Tarboro Brewing Company, and author of her self-published memoir, Life After Windows. If you haven't heard last week's episode, go give it a listen and come back to hear our thoughts. All right, Court, let's get started. Oh, that was so good. It was so good. I, I like, I had to hold back some, like, emotion. emotion. I know. I was captivated by her story. Oh, I just couldn't stop, like, listening to her talk. I know. And she has a very soothing voice, she does. too. I felt that same way. But it was just so, so good uh, and so relevant. I love that, like, she was speaking of years that mm-hmm. I, like, remember greatly and think about as, like, the heyday. Right. Uh, so that was super fun, too. But, um yeah, what an inspiring story. I know. So I feel like today's going to be a little bit heavier. Yeah. Because I think it's a lot of like... It felt heavier. Yeah, like a lot of heavy did. things I think are still valid to talk about and go mm-hmm. through. But I really loved when she first talked about the book, how she did it for herself. Mm-hmm. And that that was enough for her, that she just did it for her. And I made me think about what book would I publish that would be for me, that I would feel like I would need to help me move on with life or something like a processing book yeah like what would that what would it be that I'm trying to process through I don't know what would it be that you're trying to process through I don't know I honestly think like it would be about like becoming a mom yeah yeah like I think that there was a lot of like excitement and expectations and as you become a parent I feel like there's a lot of fear and trepidation of you're doing the right thing and yeah. and really like that first like four or five years of coming into my own mm-hmm. and like now like, like the, as a mother as a mother like I was so nervous about what everybody else thought and I was so nervous to like speak up for my kids and you know like when I think about like pivotal moments like Ada being really sick like my gut told me something was wrong but I was so afraid to say anything so I was like I'm in front of a doctor like, yeah. why would I know more than a doctor? Yeah. You know, and recognizing, like, that doctor doesn't know Ada more than I know Ada, you right. know? And when people try to tell me something about my kid, I'm just like, it makes me, like, second guess things. And I'm like, no. Like, I know my child. Like, mm-hmm. I know that's not an accurate, accurate representation of who they are. You know, like, just kind of coming into that confidence of being a mom. Yeah. So it's about being a mom. 
Maybe about being a parent. Being, I think that's being a, a little bit more inclusive. Interesting. What would yours be about? It's so interesting, this podcast, because I have no idea what Dana's <laughs> going to say. And like what I'm anticipating her saying. What did you think is, I was going to say? I don't even know. Mm. I really don't know. But I did not anticipate the uh, direction of motherhood. Well, I will say this. <laughs> I didn't anticipate it. That there is a lot. <laughs> there has been a lot of life that has happened in the past month. And there's been a lot of things that I don't think I could even write a memoir right now for and it. process. Mm-hmm. Now, if you ask me this question maybe in five years, it could be a completely different That's book. That's right. Yeah. But as of right now, at this phase of life, what uh-huh. I feel like I have been through, I've gone through, Yeah. I can write a memoir about it and recognize like where I was and how I was stronger at the end of it, that phase of life. And it's still happening, obviously. But that part of my life, yeah. that first 10 years of being a parent is definitely one that I can process through. Yeah. I mean, there would be some aspect of my memoir of being a parent for sure. But I think when I think about it, it would be more along the lines of like how to lose yourself and find yourself again. See, I'm not surprised in these podcasts. I knew exactly what you were going to say. Because it's really about that. Or like even just, I don't know, overcoming people-pleasing I think I, or how to be true to yourself, basically. Yeah, being who you're meant to be. Being who you're meant to be. Mm-hmm. And not being ashamed of it. Right. So I think there's a lot of that. Like There's been a lot of that for like my personal journey mm-hmm. of like figuring out who I am without context, mm-hmm. right? Like without in relation to Dana or in relation to Mikhail or in relation to my children or mm-hmm. in relation to my mother or in relation to my father. Mm-hmm. Like who is Courtney just as Courtney, mm-hmm. which I think is so important and I think I think it could be instrumental to lots of women because I think Mm -hmm. a lot of women define themselves based on how they relate to other people Mm -hmm. or maybe how they're in service to other people or maybe how they're useful or not useful to Mm -hmm. other people so yeah I think probably something along those lines of like the journey to discovering oneself and I can't even say that it's over because it's a continual journey I feel like this just like solidifies that I know you better than you know me (laughs) Uh, I think it solidifies that I use more words in our relationship. <laughs> well, you're probably a more little, open. A little yeah. more open as to where I'm at because I'm just there. That's, That's where I'm at. probably true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I really – I think what I knew when I knew, like, the interview was going to be, like, kind of amazing was early on when she talked about her move to New York because mm-hmm. we have interviewed a lot of people who have gone from, like, a small town or, like, a southern area and then moved to, like, a big city and they're like, oh, my God, it was so shocking. The transition was so hard. Like, I was so lonely. It's amazing to me, though. Like, side note, how many people come back? Like, oh, everyone comes back to North I Carolina. I think it's family. But Is it? Yeah. I think Our so. Our family's not here. guess we never left North Carolina. Right. So anyways, but I love when she was telling when she was saying how like there wasn't a transition because she felt so free all Mm -hmm. of a sudden. And I feel like it's really made me think about where there are moments in my life when I went from one either phase of life, one surrounding in life, like whether it was like where I lived or the job I was in and and you find yourself in that go from one to the other. And when you get to the that point, you're like, oh, my God, I'm free. Or yeah. I'm finally where I'm meant to be. Or I'm finally, like, here. Yeah. And you feel this peace and this freedom. Like, this is where I was supposed to be. You know? I thought that was a really powerful, like, visual yeah. for her. Well, I thought I felt like she felt free. Like, the freedom of reinvention without explanation. Yeah, right. I mean, talking going from a small town where everyone yeah, knows who you right. are, what your expectations are. But it made me think like – Like I re- that reminds me of when we moved up to North Carolina because yeah. Florida was kind of like that. All of our family lives in like a like one-mile radius of each other. So mm-hmm. whenever anything happened, 
everybody knew about it. Mm. And I remember when we moved to North Carolina, I was thinking, oh, that's going to be a great change, right? Like, no one's going to know, like, whenever you've, like, you know, fucked up or, they like, still whatever. They telephones. They did. I know. So one day, this is when it all dawned on me that that was not the case. Uh, it was Jody that called. And Jody called, and I can't remember why she called, but she was calling to talk to my mom and blah, blah. And I was like, oh, I'll get her. She's like, oh, by the way, I heard you're having a bad period this week. Like, how's it going? And I was like, I swear to God, I am like 600 miles away. How do you know about my period? I'm never going to escape it. Yeah. That is so accurate. It is so accurate. And I was like, it's fine. <laughs> The yeah. amount of personal information my grandmother and aunts know. knew were insane. I know. Absolutely. <laughs> so ridiculous. Oh, so I was man. thinking about when she was talking about that, I was thinking about like that kind of dynamic. Like it must have just been like this amazing ability to just be who you're going to be without any reference to who you were. And like mm -hmm. that obscurity like must be so freeing. I can't say that I've ever like 100% experienced that. I felt it the, probably the most in college. Yeah, I was going to say, going to college. Yeah. I feel like I could, because I, like, I remember when I was in elementary school, and elementary school in Florida was kindergarten through sixth grade, and I had some friends in sixth grade, and I never really felt like I fit in there, and they were kind of like the weird people too, but like, <laughs> I just, I never really wanted to be in that group. I, yeah. it just, they just didn't feel like my people, and, but I really didn't have anybody else that I connected with, and then I was homeschooled in seventh grade because according to my mother, I was becoming a problem child. And then... Because that doesn't make you weird. <laughs> right? And then in eighth grade, we went back to school. Yeah. And I remember I was like, okay, I'm going to go to junior high and I'm going to make new friends. Like, I'm not going to fall into that same group of friends. And sure enough, fall fell into the same group of friends because I, I was nervous. I was like, oh, you're in the cafeteria holding your lunch tray and there's nobody else to sit with. You're mm -hmm. going to sit with the person that tells you to come over and sit with you. And moving to North Carolina, like... I felt like I, again, I could, like, reinvent myself in a way. And I did. I, like, I was this Florida girl. Like, I had this defi definitely this persona and kind of tried to figure out who I was. But I still just never felt like I fit in anywhere. Mm -hmm. Like, I never felt like, I don't know. Like, I felt like I was always chasing after something. And a lot of it, I think, was me being afraid of being left out. Like, I didn't want to be popular, but I didn't want to be obscure. Mm -hmm. You know, I was really afraid of popular people because – I was really afraid of like peer pressure. So I, odd. I couldn't even tell you who the popular people were in school. Yeah. Well, because I was like, I was like, I was like in the middle. Yeah. You know, so like I had friends that were popular or acquaintances. I had friends that were not. And like just this weird, like, like yeah. you, you just, you were just on an island, it felt like. And then college, if I went to high school with you, I didn't talk to you in college because I was like, I am not going back. Like I'm, I'm going to be my own person. And I really was my own person. I really became mm -hmm. who I wanted to be in college. And I had great friends in college. And they were all over the whole spectrum of people and... Of popularity and weirdness. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I felt like that was a... I think I felt very, very, very free in college. Very free of who I wanted to be. Yeah. Very free of all the responsibility. Like, just free. Yeah, because we had a lot of responsibility growing up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I did it a lot that last year and a half. I had a ton of responsibility. Yeah. Like that was mom's care was on me. So yeah, that was really hard. Yeah. But I remember I felt very free and I remember mm -hmm. you felt very abandoned. Yeah, I was abandoned time. because I was left alone with my mom who was sick all the time. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would wake up. Because we didn't talk a lot, a whole lot during that no, no, year no. and a half. But I, me I remember when mom came home from the hospital finally after being in hospital for like forever, like six or seven months. I had to wake up every three and a half hours to give her medicine. Yeah. 
every three and a half hours. Yeah. Because dad was in Florida chasing a dream and only come only came up like every other week or something. Yeah. And remember he would come home and try to parent me and I was just like, you can't parent me anymore. Like you're <laughs> not here. Back it off, buddy. No, you're, like, you're not here. I'm sorry. <laughs> you have no say. Like you want to be a dad, then be here. <laughs> it was kind of mean. <laughs> yeah. But I was seven, 18, 17, you know. Yeah. Whatever. No, I felt, I felt like it was in college. That was one of my hardest, like one of my hardest times in life was right after I got married. Like the year mm-hmm. after I got married, decided I wasn't going to go to medical school, which is always like, I don't know if it was a dream or like, and an I think back on an expectation of me, you mm-hmm. know, but I was really worried about losing everything that I'd gained by getting married. Mm. I remember, like gained what? What do you mean by that? Like my independence, my sense of self, oh. like what I called and Mikhail calls it. He said we had this conversation. I called it my Courtneyism. Like I was mm-hmm. so afraid of losing that because mm-hmm. like I had just found it, mm-hmm. you know, and I think I was accurate to be afraid about that, honestly. Mm-hmm. But it was definitely like during that time in college that I felt like a real sense of like redefining mm-hmm. without the expectation, without the responsibility, because I grew up with a lot of responsibility. Like I was really a lot younger in college than I was at like, say, 15, mm-hmm. you know, in my ability to just go right. and be and do. So I think that's the thing that always and I say this to Ada all the time, not to Henry, because Henry doesn't actually talk to me at all about getting married. Um, well, he's like, you know, 10. I know, but right. I I'm, I mean, Ada's been talking to me about it since she was like mm-hmm. seven. She was convinced she was going to marry Mason, and then she realized she couldn't marry Mason because he was a first cousin, right. and that That'd was very weird. devastating. Yeah. Which now she's like, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ada. But no, I I always tell her like you should just wait. And I and Sam's like, and I always preface it like I do not regret marrying your father. Young, we had we have a wonderful marriage. We had a wonderful. We still had a great marriage when we started. We still have one now, but. There is something about being yourself for yeah. a while that allows you to have the confidence to weather marriage better. Yeah. And I think even like especially as a woman. Oh, yeah. Like especially because I think that really gets into her talking about how women tend to define themselves more as their failures mm-hmm. and their successes. Mm-hmm. There's like I'm not I've never been a man, so I can't really speak to it, but it's there hard being a woman and a mother and a business owner and all these things, like there's like a different set of expectations Mm -hmm. of other people's expectations that dictate your course of action. Mm -hmm. And like the longer that you can prolong that, I think the better off you'll be. Oh, yeah. Because you'll be able to hold your own. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's why I like relate to Taylor Swift so much. (laughs) Because she's 30 and not married? No, no, no. No, no, not at all. Because I think think she rails against it. Yeah, she like does. she's constantly says like if I was a dude you wouldn't be asking me this question yeah. if I was a dude you wouldn't be questioning like why how many people I date like and there's just such this double standard in in the world in general but yeah getting back to Inez I know I was gonna say like I think we could kind of segue into her story about the publisher and how his words like mm, just yeah. like broke her down well, she like, says broke her she spirit. basically let someone else's opinion. Not basically the, the gist that I got from that was not to let someone else's opinion stall your progress and like yeah. how much power someone else's words have over your. Doesn't that just suck though? Yeah, doesn't that suck? Mm-hmm. Especially when you when you're talking to someone who you perceive as an expert in a field mm-hmm. that you're mm-hmm. not an expert in. Right. How much that really really sucks. Yeah. No, I thought I I, I really resonated with that, and I was trying to think. I was like, was there a moment in my life? When someone spoke into it and it kind of broke me a little bit. Was there? I don't know. I don't think I don't think professionally. I feel like I've always been a little bit of an overachiever in that. Like I was I was actually I, I mean, I know this. I was a good teacher when mm-hmm. I taught. I put a lot of energy and effort into my lesson plans and I cared yeah. a lot about what my students thought. Like 
And there came a point when I stopped caring what my VP or my AP thought because I thought she was a terrible human. But um, mm-hmm. until I reached that reality, I really did care. But And I knew that when it was time to go and I left is because I stopped caring what they said to me. Like I stopped caring about their opinion. So obviously like I didn't respect them enough. But hearing it from someone you respect, I think, I think it's really hard. And I don't know if I have like a certain instance, like I don't have like a moment in time where someone said this thing and it like broke my spirit. But I think kind of going back to being a parent, like I think that first year of Ada's life, like it, I mean, it, it like destroyed me. Like it broke me as a parent because yeah. I was constantly told that I was overreacting or I was too scheduled or whatever. And it goes yeah. back to the point where like I knew her enough. And even to this day, this is Ada. Like, she just loves a routine. (laughs) She loves it. Mm -hmm. She thrived on it. She was such a happy baby. And so when I would go and we would spend time at, like, Sam's parents' house, and I'd be like, hey, like, we have to have dinner at 5. I know it sounds like we're on a geriatric schedule, (laughs) but it's what we do. We eat dinner together. It's really important to us. And, you know, Ada, like, eats at 5, from 5 to 5.45. She takes a bath, like. We have a read time. She's in the crib by seven. Yeah. And she's out. And she doesn't necessarily sleep all night, but she'll sleep till midnight, get fed, and then she'll sleep till five. Like that works for our family. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a healthy baby, whatever. And they just never respected it. Like Mm -hmm. never cared. It was just, okay, yeah, that sounds fine. Then we'd be there and dinner wouldn't be till seven. So then you had a screaming baby (laughs) for three days. Granted, should I have fed her and put her down? Yes. Like- that's just what we should have done. But she should have just had like other dinner. Right. Right. But it just was like a afraid to rock the boat type thing or yeah. whatever. Now, whenever I have any, anybody that is a parent or a mother, I will never offer unsolicited advice. Never ever. I could I could think all these things. Like I could I could think that you're doing all of it wrong. It depends on how invested I am. Like if I no. felt like some, if I felt like something was like going on with Ada and you need to know or need advice, I would give you advice because well, I'm invested in Ada's life. Certainly. I mean, let's let's take family, let's take the super, super close friends out of it. But even even some of my best friends who have had babies, and you know, unless they specifically ask yeah. me a question and 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 to be fair, I don't know their I don't know that kid enough yeah. to be able to speak into it. I will never, I will never offer. If they ask me, I will, I will offer and I'll offer it gently. Yeah. But like it, it really made me understand like how much as we define ourselves as moms, right? How much, again, going back to that success and failure thing, like we can only see where we have failed with our children. We can't see how we've been successful with our children and, and how hard it is to hear someone say, I think you're doing this wrong. Whether they are right, it doesn't really matter. Because at the end of the day, it is your baby, it is your child, it is your experience, and it is your gut reaction to whatever's happening. And I will never tell a mom that you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Unless they're like obviously harming their child. Right. (laughs) But, and I've always given from that moment on people a lot of grace in that because I remember how it felt. Yeah. I feel that way though sometimes too. Like we aren't the most like structured of parents. Mm our family in general, but I have good kids. Like mm-hmm. they're kind kids. Mm-hmm. They're loving kids. They're fairly respectful kids, mm-hmm. you know? And sometimes it just strikes me like how much love is like in our family. Mm-hmm. I mean, even when Mason, who's 13 and like playing football, like 
he always acknowledges us in the stand. We mm-hmm. yell at Mason. He turns around. He waves. He sees mm-hmm. me. He has to give me a hug. Whereas the rest, most of the team, like, won't even acknowledge that their parents are, like, speaking to them, right. you know, or whatever. And I just think, like, how much, like, love that we have in our mm-hmm. family. And even though it doesn't look what I would consider, like, how I was raised, right, mm-hmm. in, like, a very strict, like, conventional environment, that doesn't make it that doesn't mean that it's good or it's bad. There's mm-hmm. no like judgment on it, but it's right. more about like, what are you producing in this mm-hmm. environment, right? Mm-hmm. Like what kind of child are you producing? Like what kind of adult are you producing? Right. Like what's coming from this? And it struck me that the other, like I feel the most anxious when I feel like people, not when I'm just operating in my house, but when people, outsiders are coming to my house and like maybe passing judgment or like, oh, they shouldn't do this or they shouldn't. Like for example, the other day, Liam was playing a card game and he was racing 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 and uh he was like shit i guess someone passed him i was in the bedroom he was in the family room and mason was like in the middle he's like aren't you gonna go say something to him and i was like no i don't care if you're sitting by yourself and you're playing a racing game and you say shit fuck damn whatever like you're by yourself he's not saying it to somebody he's not being disrespectful he's not being disrespectful like i don't control your thoughts and i don't want a controlling environment he's like oh I was like, yeah, like yeah. it's very different than when you're like speaking to somebody else or calling somebody a name than sure. when you're sitting in your room totally. by yourself and you say a cuss word. Yeah. I have every expectation, Mason, that you do the exact same right. thing. <laughs> and maybe I just haven't heard it. Right. But then I'm like, when like say like my parents are there who mm. are like super conservative or like mm-hmm. whatever. And like what if Liam's racing in his game and someone passes him and he says, oh shit, right? Because yeah. that's like his inclination or whatever. Then I, like, start thinking, like, oh, my God, what do they think about me as a parent? Not am I worried, what does this, what kind of child does this produce? Am I making successful people or whatever? I'm making independent thinkers Mm -hmm. and whatnot. And you just have got to get away from other people's opinion and just be somewhat confident Mm -hmm. in how you're raising them. Yeah. And how it feels at the time. Does it feel good to you? Mm -hmm. Is it a loving environment? Like, are they moving forward? Yes, Mm -hmm. yes, 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 yes. And all that other shit, it doesn't matter. I know, but there's something so like, I don't know, it's heartwarming in a way. And it sounds terrible to hear your kids swear, but like we were sitting in the family room and the kids were doing the dishes and Henry's trying to wash this pan and it falls and he goes, shit. And Ada's like, it's okay, I'll help you. Like just breezed right over it. Like it's like a normal conversation. Mm -hmm. And as we had had the conversations with the kids, like we really don't mind. Yeah. It's just... Like when you're around Nani and Pop Up, they find that to be very disrespectful. Very yeah. Like Nina does not like people to swear, especially the F word around her. You can right. say damn all day long, mm-hmm. but maybe not from a kid. But like, yeah. Like there are moments and instances where it is okay and where it is not okay. And you have to know that. And you have to be mature enough. And if you're not, if you can't pick and choose those times, just don't say then it. just don't say it. Right. Like that's the reality of it. But yeah, I know. But it's something we just, me and Sam just laughed at it because it was such a funny scene. Like, yeah. I don't think it's good or bad parenting. I don't know. I don't know if it's good or bad parenting. I really I don't no know. Idea. But at the same time, like, I also don't. I'm, I don't I'm really not care. a micromanager. Like, I don't want to no. control it. You know what I, I just, mean? They hear it so much. They hear it in movies. They it's, hear it in TV. It's so much more prevalent. They hear it in music. Uh, you can't avoid it. No, you can't avoid it. Yeah. So why wanted to teach them how to use it respectively. Yeah. I don't know. But oh. All right. Yeah. So I also really loved her statement about when she was talking about how her business does not define her. Yeah. Like she would be the same person if she was a teacher, or preschool teacher or, you know, what she, she was basically saying like there is freedom 
and being and able I to have, and I have often felt this like yeah. there's freedom just to like 90 degree it yeah right like, like be able to okay, change be able to change mm-hmm. like yes I've owned this business yes I've done these things but if I wanted to go and be a preschool teacher that should be fine with you too like it doesn't define me as a successful human because I have a successful business mm-hmm. it's basically kind of mm-hmm. how I interpreted what she was saying yeah and there was definitely times where like for me personally when like life was going for shit that the business was what I wanted to define me because that's what I felt like was going well you know but there's definitely times too where like the business was going for shit and I didn't want that to define me you know what I mean right so I think that I just think she was kind of speaking to like the freedom to be able to like pick up and change direction and still be that same person in that new role right but don't you feel like and I feel like we this is where our our I feel like our particular situation is really hard Mm -hmm. because I think that so much of who we are so much of of our persona and our business and our story is always wrapped up into the other person it's more like people like when I think about people in industry like I brought wrapped up in a sister yeah so I think I brought Sam to that memorial a few weeks ago because I like emotionally needed him there and and it was the first time a lot of people had met Sam, had actually mm-hmm. met who, this person, this husband that I talk yeah. about and they see on Instagram or whatever. And it blew my mind. And it blew my mind that like when I'm with him and I'm in like that setting, I am me. Like I can, I not that I'm not me with him, but I mean like he saw a different part of me. He's like when you're, he's like, you're like a, like a business person, like you're like on. I'm like, well, yeah, that's why I'm so exhausted sometimes mm-hmm. when I come home because I'm always on. And like how my relationship with Sam had nothing to do with my relationship with anybody else. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it didn't it didn't define who I was that I was Sam's wife, right? Right. If anything, at that point, Sam was my husband. Right. Right. Where I feel like there's such a huge part of our life where I am not Dana. I am Dana and Courtney. And so much of who I am is defined through the two of us. I joke about that all the time because people are like, Are you Courtney, Dana's sister? And I'm like, Good thing my mom gave me that middle name. She knew Dana was coming, right? I'm like, yes, I'm Courtney, Dana's sister. <laughs> but isn't it? I but I but I do think that like, and I don't I I don't want it to come across like I don't begrudge it. Sometimes I do. Yeah. I mean, I've said to you on an occasion or two that I'm feeling I feel very suffocated sometimes. Yeah. That I can't like be who I want to be, or like not that I can't be who I want to be, but I can never just be me. Yeah. Like I'm mm-hmm. always connected and attached. Absolutely. And it feels like I'm sure it's how twins feel. Like, it probably feels like this. I'm sure. Yeah. Like that there's just no other like, like you're always just attached. One, one to half per- of a story. One half of a person. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I feel like that. Like, so I feel like is, I don't know if my business defines me, but my sister defines me. <laughs> That's a shame. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a shame. I'm just saying it's the truth. No, I feel that way. I mean, I, I mean, I always, I always feel like it's like, are you, you're Courtney. Dana's sister. Yes. Dana's sister. But it's like one of the reasons I was so happy for you to be like NACE president. Mm -hmm. Like I felt like it was like a totally Dana thing. I don't have any aspirations to be NACE president. Mm -hmm. Like it looks like a whole lot of work that I don't have time to like devote to. Right. Mm -hmm. And I totally get that. I mean, I feel defined by that Mm -hmm. often. But I mean, I don't necessarily see it as like a negative thing all the time. 
No. I think there's always like the tension. There's yeah. always a tension of being a sister. I think anytime yes. you're a sister, there's some level of competition. There's mm-hmm. some low level competition, even mm-hmm. though we're both striving towards the same goal. Right. There's always like she looks prettier than me today or like I didn't know we were supposed to step it up in the makeup environment. Like I didn't get the memo. Now she has better hair skills than me and we used to have <laughs> similar hair skills. I'm trying know. to bring you over to the dark side. Yeah, I know. I just like I just could give two shits. Yeah. It's like what it is. And I wish, I really wish I could. I wish for everyone's sake that I could, but I just cannot. I mean, I've tried to give you, bring you over to the dark side of my yogi ways. It's true. I'm like, well, it would just be so much more peaceful and better and kumbaya. Mm -hmm. You could just do some downward dog with me. Like, Mm -hmm. come on. You know, so I definitely think like we have like our own, but there's also, I think it's more work trying to carve out your individuality mm-hmm. when you're always a duo. Oh, so much It's work. so much more. So you're always trying to be like, that was Dana, but like, this is me, mm-hmm. right? Like this is, this is, this is my mm-hmm. realm. And there's definitely like a Venn diagram, like more overlaps mm-hmm. than doesn't, but still there is some like individuality that you're always trying mm-hmm. to prove. And I just think that that is like the beauty. Mm-hmm. And sometimes also, like, the pain of it all. Yeah. I will agree with all that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it's, like, who we've been, like, most of our life. It just happens to be wrapped up in our business. But I think it's more just, like, our relationship Mm -hmm. that comes through in our business than our business coming through in our relationship. Right, right, right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, the relationship, obviously, not that we were sisters before, but, like, the closeness relationship was there before the business even started. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, we had the option of, like, sharing a room or not sharing a room, and we shared a room. Right. Like, we shared closets. Like, Mm -hmm. we shared everything, you know? Like, it was all of it. Yeah. It just wasn't an option. Mm -hmm. So, like, which gave us a great foundation for, like, a lot of bullshit that was to come, for sure. But, yeah, I definitely think... I think that the business has just it is somewhat defining because it's so wrapped into our mm-hmm. relationship that it does feel very defining. Right. I don't know. I thought that was uh, that was a great interview. Yeah. I think it was a lot to I think the I think the biggest takeaway for me was just and I said this on the podcast that her journey was long and so yeah. meaningful. Like when I think I mean you just think about not even that like oh I could have been there. I could have been at the World Trade Center that day, but just the amount of loss. Yeah. It seemed like very profound. And that was like one of the things, and just like kind of ending on that is I've thought about this like in my own relationships. Not mm-hmm. that I've really experienced a lot of death. Like we had an aunt that died. My husband and I, his best man died like a couple of years after our wedding uh, and like dealing with that grief mm-hmm. and processing like the finality of that. But mm-hmm. something that's come up just in like my relationship and my relationship with you and my mm-hmm. relationship with Mikhail and my relationship with myself is like grieving as just a part of life. Mm-hmm. Like you have to allow that space to like process and to grieve and to get to the other side because there's always going to be things that you're grieving in mm-hmm. life. Not necessarily just the finality of like losing a person, mm-hmm. but it could be a business. It could be yourself. Mm-hmm. It could be an idea. It could be, mm-hmm. you know, a relationship, right? And I think that I love how she was talking about that you need, like when you're in that grieving process and whatever's like putting you there to be good to yourself and you're, don't expect yourself to produce something great Mm -hmm. during that time. Like take Mm -hmm. that time to process, take that time to grieve, Mm -hmm. take that time to like do that journey work Mm -hmm. because it doesn't have to be the end. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And that's like one of the things in my journal that I've, I've often written about is just like 
grieving as a life cycle Mm -hmm. and how we are so afraid of it and we avoid it and it just feels so hard and impossible, but yet you grieve things all the time. Yeah, it was it reminds me a lot of we just did Bo's last memorial on Wednesday and his brother gave a talk and I actually And Bo is a caterer like in our industry. Yeah, and he passed that away. That passed away ago, like unexpectedly. Like really yeah. tragically. And he was a really, really dear friend of ours and we helped the family with the memorial and some other wedding industry people did as well. And um and I started following Rain, his brother, and he had posted this prior to it and then he mentioned it in his yeah. uh, speech. But he said that Grief is the price of love. Grief grief is the price you pay to, to love, basically. To love. Yeah. And it was really, really, really profound to me because I feel like for a long time, not that I think grief is weakness. Yeah. But I think a lot of times you feel like, oh, I should be, I should be fine. I should be over this, or I should be okay, or I shouldn't be so heartbroken over this. Or and you can you can like rationalize anything you want to rationalize about it. You can say like especially if someone like has a long fought battle, like they're in a better place or mm-hmm. whatever, like all that bullshit that people tell you and someone yeah. passes and um, or it's God's plan or whatever stupid <laughs> BS they say. And he said, would you ever, and he said, would you trade it? Yeah. Would you trade the love? Would you trade the memories? Would you trade the years? And and no one, no one would ever say, yes, I would trade it because yeah. I want to feel this way, you know, but it also gave a lot of freedom to understand that like, Grief isn't a weakness. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's an immense amount of strength. Like, yeah. Because it came from a place of where you let go enough to let somebody impact you. Yeah. And you let go enough to love somebody enough to have this be so painful. And I think what you're saying, grief is a life cycle. Like, even as you, like, I grieved being a teacher because I loved that job. Mm-hmm. Like, I grieved when I got married because I loved being in college. Yeah. Like. You know what I mean? Like it's, and I wouldn't trade any of those experiences for any part of my life to feel how shitty I felt for however long I felt. Right. You know? And it's the same thing. Like you're going to grieve my, I'm going to cry and grieve my kid goes to college. I'm not going to like trade that. 18 years. Yeah. I I don't want to feel shitty. Maybe like the year three and maybe the year nine. I don't know. Yeah. You know what I mean? But like it's, I I just thought that was like such a profound yeah. way to look at it and to and to center you back to it like right. when you are feeling those things you're going through it and not to sound like fluffy and like oh it's all worth it I'm fine now because I love these people but it's it's just more centering yeah like why you're grieving like your grief is real and it's valid and you need the time you need to treat yourself well you need to give yourself the space because you had a lot of love that's just gone gone yeah and I, and I think that, like, normalizing that, mm-hmm. I think normalizing that that is an aspect of life is so crucial because you can grieve, you can grieve aspects of yourself. Like, you can grieve yeah. aspects of a relationship. You can grieve aspects of your business. You can grieve, like you said, children going off to college. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even have to be final. It can just mm-hmm. be grieving these stages of your life, but it's a process. Mm-hmm. And I think, to her point, like, not having this unrealistic expectation right. of what you're going to produce right. in the middle of that grief mm-hmm. and being really kind to yourself mm-hmm. and letting the process play itself out, right. I think is so important to being, like, a whole and successful person, which obviously she is, you right. know, like, taking the grieving and, you know, she's opened up a couple of businesses. She's written this memoir, like, and processed it further to help other people with their journeys as well on that. I think that that's so amazing. Mm-hmm. And that's the power of being able to like walk through mm-hmm. like that grief and get to the other side of it.
Thanks, everyone, for gathering with us today to talk about The Hustle. For our episode with Inez, we're drinking Tarboro Brewing Company's new home for the holidays, Spiced Ale. You can get it yourself with the link in our show notes. We hope you get a chance to drink it this week, and cheers to processing grief. To learn more about Inez Rubastello and her business, visit tarborobrewingcompany.com on the squarenc.com or follow on Instagram at tarborobrewingcompany at on the square tarboro or follow her personal at Inez Rubastello. You can purchase and read more about Inez's book, Life After Windows, on our show notes. And to learn more about our hustles, visit cndevents.com, anthemhouse.com, thebradfordnc.com, and hustleandgather.com. Or follow us on Instagram at cndevents, at anthem.house, at the Bradford NC, and at Hustle and & Gather. And if you like this show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. This podcast is a production of Your Fluence. I'm Courtney. And I'm Dana. And we'll see you next time on Hustle & Gather.